Well, you can just put your finger in the Numbers passage, and we're going to look at that first. The book of Numbers in Hebrew, does anyone know what it's called? Bamidbar, that's correct. Can anyone tell me what that means? Nope, actually. Ba is the Hebrew word for in. Midbar is the word for wilderness. So Numbers is called in the wilderness. And indeed, would you know it, the context for the book of Numbers is the wilderness. The interesting thing is the word Midbar or wilderness is connected with the Hebrew word for word, Devar. So there's this connection between being in the wilderness and being in a place where his word comes to you in just such a raw form. And indeed, that was where the Torah was given. Okay, the Greek, the Greek names for the five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Arithmoi, and Deuteronomy. Arithmoi equals numbers. But for some reason, we kept four of the five Greek names for the, to- the books of the Torah, and we decided to change Arithmoi to numbers. Maybe Arithmoi sounds too much like arithmetic, and it would scare children who were in grade school or something. I don't know. But the, the name of this parsha is pregnant with meaning. I could give a whole teaching just on the name of this parasha. And I'm not going to, but I want to I give you a little bit of the meaning of it. The meaning of this, the, the Hebrew term for this parasha is shalach lecha. Can you all say shalach lecha? Shalach lecha. And uh, it's where the Almighty is speaking to Moses and saying, send for yourself. Send for yourself into uh, the land of Canaan, Spies to reconnoiter it, like we read. And uh, the word shlach, as you can guess, means send, right? It's also an agricultural term for a plant. When a plant is growing, it's sending forth growth. It's sending forth uh, new material. It's sending forth shoots and roots and the like. So that's the word for sending. Now, this is also the Hebrew root for the Hebrew word for an apostle. Uh, Apostle is a word in English that we got from the Greek that doesn't actually mean anything in English outside of a New Testament context. Uh, A better better English parallels for apostle would be like an emissary or someone sent on a mission like an agent or uh, even a diplomat. It has all of those connotations. Uh, But we just say apostle. But the Hebrew is shaliach. Can we all say shaliach? A shaliach is an apostle. And can you hear the root of shaliach? It's shalach, someone who is sent. Have any of you ever seen a tree root or some type of plant root that actually penetrated concrete and broke through concrete? Yes. Yeah, that's a picture of the apostolic mission. There's something very powerful to it. Slow, perhaps, but steady growth equals unstoppable force. Okay, so that's the name of this parasha. Shlach Lecha. You could say it, it, it's going to teach us something about the apostolic mission, about the apostolic calling that was on Yeshua's early emissaries and I believe continues to be an integral part of the body of Messiah today. But in order to understand that, we need to back up uh, seven or eight generations. We're going to go all the way back to the very first time we met in this building as a congregation on October 31st, 2009. Do you remember which parsha is our congregation's birth parsha? It's the third parsha in the Torah. And it's entitled Lech Lecha. 
Lech Lecha. Can anyone tell me what that means? It was the Holy One was speaking to Avram when he was still in Urkasdim, like uh, pagan Mesopotamia, and he said, "Avram, go for yourself." Uh, Genesis twelve verse one: "Go for yourself to the land that I'm going to show you." And the Hebrew term there for "go" is "lech." Everybody say "lech." If I was just really getting on Colin's nerves and he just had to tell me to like get out of the room, he would tell me "lech," "lech," go. Right? Um, similarly, we have this word lacha, lach lacha. Go where? Go for yourself. It can also literally mean go to yourself. So our congregation's birth parsha is lach lacha, go for yourself. Spoken originally to our forefather in the faith, Abram. Now, seven or eight generations later in the Torah chronology, and 30. This is the 37th parasha we're reading here. So what is that, 34 parashas later? We have this parasha called Shalach Lacha, send for yourself. So there's there's a very deep teaching here that's very relevant to our lives as individuals and also to us as a congregation. What comes first? First, the sending forth into the land of Canaan, the the going in in apostolic power, or is the first thing that, what, or is it like going for yourself in, in obedience to the Father's command? Going for yourself. Lech lecha precedes shlach lecha. And uh, we see this in the lives of Yeshua's apostles. Mark chapter 3, he didn't just gather them around himself, give them a, a week, weekend training course, and then send them off to do the work of the kingdom. He called them to live in very close quarters with him for several years straight. And in that context of being with the Master, doing life with the Master, watching Him closely, just doing like normal life, not just, not just in an artificial classroom setting, but doing normal life, they began to become like Him. They received their training. And they went from that place of lech lecha, go for yourself to follow the Master, to shalach lecha, now I will send you out in that power to uh, cast out demons, to impact society to proclaim the good news that will set people free and bring healing to them and to their families and to their societies. So that's the deeper, that's the deeper sense. Uh, there's another interesting connotation. Uh, we learn that shalach lecha is like the root of an emissary, a shaliach. Lech lecha is literally the word for walk, go. It literally is walk. Um, you probably know the Hebrew verb halach. means to walk. Now, there's a Hebrew word connected to that. Halakha. Can anyone tell me what halakha means? Yeah, it's your walk. How you, how, you, uh, how you do the Torah. How you apply the Bible to your life. That is your halakha. So what we learn from this is there is a process in our lives. There's a stage where Yeshua is just calling us to really focus on our personal discipleship. Going deep in the Word and also focusing on our personal halakha our personal application of His mitzvot, His commandments to our lives. And once we go through that time of training, it's a specific period of time for each one of us. They'll reach a point where you go from that, focusing on your halacha, to hitting the stage where He sends you out in a greater degree of power. And I believe that doesn't only apply to us as individuals. That applies to us as a community. 
We are, we are in a season where we're going deep in the Word, where we're learning practical applications of God's commandments, where we're focusing on halakha. And eventually we will get to that stage where He really uh, mantles us with His power, where He begins to reach through us more to the community around us, and where He's going to bring many more new disciples to us. Of, of this I am convinced. And so this is a season where we're just going to go for it wholeheartedly with going through the training, with, with taking every commandment in the first five books of the Bible seriously and applying them to our lives and getting serious about this thing, like developing a fierce devotion to the commandments of God. And as we do that, the power is going to come. So that's what we learn from Lech Lecha and Shalach Lecha. There are two other interesting things that we learn from the title of this parasha. It says, Shalach Lecha, which literally means send to yourself. Why does it say send to yourself people into the land of Israel? Because the land of Israel is who Israel really is. The identity of Israel is who God's people really are. How many of you have been to the land of Israel? Okay. And I'm sure we've all met people who have been there. How many, of you, how many of you, was it a time when he really showed you who you really were in relationship to him and his covenant? I, I have met so many people, they went to Israel and that's where they found themselves. Not, not apart from God, but in relation to God and his covenant. Not apart from the Jewish people, but in relationship to the people of Israel. That's where they found themselves. And that's what we see in this. Shlach lecha, send, for, send to yourself. And uh, that, is, that is a quest that we're on as a congregation also. Welcome, Mark. Great to have you here. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at the, the next section of this. In 13.2, it says, Send for yourself. Where does it say that he sent them from? In verse 3, it says, He sent them from the wilderness of Paran. Does anybody know what the Hebrew term Paran means? No. <laughs> Paran. We had a great-grandmother who was named Paranya from Russia. It's a very pretty name. Paran is... Uh, the root of it is Pa'ar in Hebrew. Everybody say Pa'ar. And it means fair or beautiful. So they were in a wilderness... The father invited his people out into a wilderness called fair or beautiful. And it was from that place that he sent them in a military campaign into the land of Israel. What does that tell us about the body of Messiah, the bride of Messiah? He, he calls us out of the system represented by Egypt that is strongly influenced by the evil one who deceives the whole world. He calls us out of it into this wilderness, like we learned, that represents his word, where he just downloads his word into us. And it's just him and us receiving that revelation and where he beautifies us as the bride. He makes us fair in his eyes. And then what does he do? Then he gives us our army boots. Did you know Messiah's bride wears army boots? And then we go into Canaan. We take that place. We go out into the world and we make disciples. We kick out demons. We do the stuff. Can you see that? You see that correlation there, hey? So that's what pa'ar means. Um, I was surprised when I first read a couple of classical Hebrew translations of the Brit Chadashah, the New Testament. The standard term for glory is kavod. I'm sure we all know that. But when Yeshua is talking about how the Father glorifies Him, like in John chapter 17, for instance, they don't use the word kavod. They don't translate that as like the Father kavodifying the Son. If I could 
do, use a little Hebrewish. They use the word pa'ar. He, the father pa'arifying the son. And like we just learned, that is the word not for like in your face, heavy duty glory. Pa'ar, like the father glorifying the son means like to beautify the son, to give him this fairness and attractivity. And we see that correlation between Yeshua the son and then the bride. Hey, Jessica and Rebecca, Shabbat Shalom. We're reading from Numbers, uh, Numbers 13, just if you guys want to turn there or whatever. Yeah, so um, here, here's another level. Did you notice we're only three verses in? Don't worry, we're not going to take this much time on every verse in, in, in this parasha. But it says that Moses sent the spies into Canaan to take the place, correct? Where, what was the name of the wilderness that Moses sent them from? Paran. And we learn that Paran is the Hebrew term for Yeshua being glorified. Therefore, Moses sending the spies into Canaan is a picture of Yeshua in glory, in his glorified state, sending his people into the world to take the world for him. Think we could draw those correlations? I'm trying to get like the gospel perspective on this parasha, right? How does this apply to us as a congregation in our mission? And I, I, that's, what I, that's what I get out of it. Colin, do you want to flip the slide? I'll have to go one more over. There we are. Uh, there, is, there are two enlarged letters in this parsha in the Hebrew text, which tells us that there's something deeper here. There's a deeper meaning. And these enlarged letters are like, X marks the spot. Dig for the treasure here, right? So here's, here's one of them. Uh, it's the account about Joshua and Caleb, the two against the ten, and <laughs> when it says that Caleb like silenced the people, he hushed the people, it has an enlarged letter. It says in Hebrew, Vayahas. And then the Samach there is enlarged. Can you all see it? Actually, it's kind of cool. We have the English word hush, and the Hebrew is has. So Caleb hushed the people. He hushed the people. And we're going to learn about that in a second. Before that we do that, though, I, I want to do a skit. I need a Joshua and a Caleb. Hmm. Who's going to be my Joshua and Caleb? It, it can be guys and gals both. Maybe. Okay, I'm just going to... Okay, listen, I'm going I'm to have 12 people here, so I need quite a few of you. So just give me, two, give me a Joshua and a Caleb here. Okay, Joshua and Caleb. Okay, Joshua and Caleb, come up here, and you two stand on, you two stand on this side, okay? Okay, I need, I need ten guys to be right, uh, right here. This will let me come up a little bit farther. Okay, good. Now I need ten, I need ten other people to be the ten spies. So just ten people, come up, come up, come up. It's going to be like half of you, and I'm going to have you stand here facing Joshua and Caleb. Okay, you have to clump in real close together, the ten spies. <laughs> we don't have enough yet. Come on, girls. Yeah. Come on, Summer. <laughs> One, two, three. How many do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We need two more. <laughs> okay, there we go. Now clump together a little bit. Okay, now, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a little skit here, okay? This is Joshua and Caleb. You guys say, can. 
All right? And you guys say, can't. Because this, this is the essence of what was going on here, right? Oh, I'm sorry. If you have an English accent, then you can say it with Hannah. In Hannah's way. Oh, yeah, and you can also sing it if you want. Okay, so just go back and forth and say that a couple times. So you get the feel for this thing, right? Can. 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 Give it a little gusto, you guys. Can. Okay. Good job, guys. You're getting, you're getting a feel for that. Oh, go! All right, go for it if you want. Are we dismissed? You're dismissed. Thanks, guys. It was a very simple skip. So, this this was what was going on. Now, I want you to notice something. The spies who brought back the negative report of the land did have correct details for the most part. They weren't wrong. They were big cities. There were giants. They faced formidable challenges in any military campaign that they were going to stage. That was true. So their details were correct. But what was wrong? Their conclusion was wrong. And their focus was wrong. Because they left out the other half. They left out the fact that the land is a very, very good land. They didn't focus on that aspect. They focused on the challenges, the problems, and they made them look insurmountable, insoluble. We can learn something from this. You know, it's, it's good, you know, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, for instance, it's good to do a thorough market analysis, it's good to factor in all the details, right? And that's what these guys were doing, so that's good, but it's not enough. If, if it takes our eyes off the master, if it takes our eyes off what he has expressly said to us, then we miss the point. If we, uh, we can have all the right details, but we can draw the wrong conclusion if it's not based on faith, and if it isn't based on what he is speaking to us through his Holy Spirit. That's something I get out of that. And then, of course, there's this attitude thing, isn't there? These ten spies, they just had a bad attitude. I mean, they shot themselves in both feet before they even started out. They said, we can't. That was their conclusion. We can't do it. And you know what? They were right there too, weren't they? But they didn't factor God into the equation. And that's where they lost their lives. Joshua and Caleb, they said, guys, forget all of that. We can do this. We can go into the land. We can make Aliyah. And uh, the Father blessed them for their holy optimism. He blessed them for their, you know what? They were irrational. Joshua and Caleb were irrational in their attitude and in the conclusion that they made. Like, any, any rational uh, military analyst, analyst would have said, you can't do it. This, is, this will be impossible. They're going to slaughter you. But these guys had that spiritual vision that was based on the word of God. And it made them invincible. And the Father rewarded them for that. <laughs> I, wanted to, I want to point out to you my favorite Hebrew phrase in this parish. This will be our Hebrew lesson of the week, okay? It's really simple. Numbers fourteen seventeen. This is what they had to say. Oh, sorry. I think 1317 would be more accurate. 1317, this is what they had to say about the land. It's not there either. The Hebrew verses this week, I think, were different than the English verses, and I wrote these out in the Hebrew verses, which doesn't help. Okay, anyway, you know where they said the land is a very, very good land? I want to teach you the Hebrew there. Tova. Haaretz. 
Meod, meod. I'll say the Hebrew and you tell me the translation. Tova. Good. Ha'aret. The land. Meod, meod. Very, very. Tova. Meod, meod. They said very twice. So that, that's our Hebrew phrase for the week, okay? Tova ha'aretz meod meod. The land is very, very good. That, that stands true forever. <laughs> um, moving on from that, uh, I'll, I'll share with you a little something that I noticed about our Creator. He likes to negotiate. Did you notice that? He likes to wrestle. He wrestled with Jacob. What is this? I mean, don't you think he would just... I mean, he's the Almighty. Don't you think he would just demand submission and grab someone by the back, the hair on the back of their heads, and put their face in the dirt and say, you will obey me? That, that, is, that is the uh, more Muslim view of God. The whole concept of like Islam is the way of submission. It is like forced submission. But we are named Israel. And Israel means someone who wrestles with God. And you'll notice that. Abraham, he ends up negotiating with the Almighty. Moses ends up doing that multiple times. What is it about our Creator where He invites us to come and interact with Him? Like as intelligent people, as people with feeling hearts, as someone who could even be like, uh, what about this? Have you considered this factor? And we see this here. Moses is like, like Yahweh just flat out offers them, you know what, I, I just want to kill them all. Let's start, off with, let's start anew with you. I want to make a new nation out of you. And did you notice Moses' response? Because I think there's a key here in prayer also. He said, but what is everybody going to think of you then? What about your reputation? Did you notice that? They're, they're going to they're see how you brought them out of Egypt, and then they're going to say, ha, well, he was powerful enough to bring him out of Egypt, but it didn't look like he was powerful enough to bring him into the land. God, what kind of conclusions are the nations going to draw? And that was a very convincing line of reasoning, apparently, in intercession. So remember that in prayer. Did you notice what the very first line in the prayer that our Master taught us is? Father, your name... Your reputation, let it be hallowed. Let it be sanctified. Let it be honored in this world. The very first thing we pray is that God's name would be honored. That His, that his reputation would be sanctified. That He would be treated as holy because He is holy. That's what we pray for our society. Charlotte, what you were praying about, the fear of God being on our province and country. I've been praying that this week. And I don't know why. It's just been on my spirit. So I just want to say that I absolutely agree with that prayer. And that's, that's the whole concept behind this. So in prayer, you can say, Father, what about, what about your reputation? What about the honor of your name? That is a very effective means of prayer. Because, you know, His name is called upon us. His name is called upon His people, the body of Messiah. When we're praying, we can pray, Father, let your name be honored because your name is called upon us. There's one more enlarged letter in here that I wanted to point out to you. It's... Uh, where Moses is negotiating with the Almighty for the existence of the entire nation. This is an existential, uh, shall we say, threat. And there's an enlarged letter. Can you see the very first letter there? Can anyone tell me what letter that is? On the right-hand side, because we read from right to left, sorry. It is the letter, you know what, it look, that would look like a resh, but it's actually the letter yod. And the yod is enlarged so big that it looks like a letter resh. So, good job on that. It's in uh, Numbers fourteen seventeen. 
Moshe's praying, and he says, Let the power of Yahweh be great, just as you've declared. So the very first letter of that word for great, Yigdalna, is uh, the one that's enlarged. And it tells us that there's a deeper understanding here too. And it's an understanding of power. Um, Power is something that men will kill for, that people lust after. Um, We see that throughout history. Um, Power in the corporate business world is something that people can be very cutthroat about. Climbing the corporate ladder, getting to that higher position. Uh, The pop understanding of power, I think, is in direct contradistinction to the scriptural understanding. So I want to give you a scriptural insight into what real power is. Because I think it's something the Father wants each one of us to tap into and experience in our lives. It says, Let your power be great, just as you've declared Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. That's real power right there. Patience. Having a really long fuse, that is true power. The ability to forgive, that is true power. When, when you cannot forgive someone, when you can't let something go that someone's done to you, it's, it, it, you know, even if you were innocent and they shouldn't have done that, even if it was horrible and it affected you, if you can't forgive them and let go of that, that person still has power over you. But when you forgive them and let it go, then you are free. And you can once again come under the Father's power and under His direct influence. Um, that seems to be a real theme in Yeshua's teaching. And then finally, in addition to patience... In forgiveness, it talks about abundant and loving kindness. Like that word for, for devotion, for free generosity. You know, the ability to give freely, that is a powerful, powerful thing. And wow, look at Yeshua, hey? I mean, he was, he was, a, he was the most powerful man in history. And yet, it wasn't like the common definition of power that he was exerting. He was, he was patient, he was forgiving, he was kind. And he was really in your face with Pharisees and some of the Pharisees and some of the religious people who were, who were mistreating people also. Um, for, chapter 14, verse 21, I think is my favorite promise in the Torah. It's a prediction of the ultimate destiny of the universe that we live in. And it's not something that we've seen the fulfillment of yet. This is like a sneak peek into your future. It's a trailer for the Messianic era, the thousand-year reign of Messiah. He says, the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Yahweh's glory is going to fill the whole earth. Wow. What that means is like the, all of existence, the four dimensions of physical existence, this is even bigger than our universe. This stretches beyond to the millions of galaxies out there. The whole thing is going to be subsumed in the reality of who Yahweh is. The weight of His person. Wow, hey? That is where we're going. That is the destiny of the universe that you live in. So, you know, when you, when, you, when you see the front lines on the newspaper, when you watch the evening news, and you see a lot of evil, and you see a lot of problems, just remind yourself of the greatest promise in the Torah, that that is not our ultimate, um, our ultimate future. We stand for where we're going in His glory. Uh, can I just add to that glory? Uh, yeah. Uh, Shekhinah, yeah. Shekhinah is like his, uh, where his glory dwells. It's the root for where he dwells, yeah. So like his abiding glory. Yeah. 
for sure. I, I, I sensed his Shekhinah this morning when we were worshiping. Like, I felt like he came and there was, he was there. And I, I love that. Okay. Um, 1429, it gives us an interesting age category in the Torah worldview, in the understanding of the people of Israel uh, on a community level. 20 and up. For some reason, 20 years old was a, was a pivotal age in um, the way the Creator viewed His people. It's like after the age 20, they were responsible for their own actions, 100%. Uh, they could be judged by Him. Uh, it tells me that this may be something we'll want to be in dialogue about as a messianic community and as a movement. What is it about age 20? What changes when someone reaches the age of 20? Uh, how do we as a community want to welcome people when they reach the age of 20 into whatever that age uh, is a picture of them coming into? 13 is another significant age. Um, you, yeah, Daniel's bar mitzvah was just a couple weeks ago, eh? At age 13. Yeah, so that's another thing maybe we could discuss over Oneg, the age, age 20 and what that stands for. I want to point something out about the last part of this parasha. It's where it says to, where are these thingies? If I was like kind of Western, you can kind of be like, you can spin your pistols or something, you know? It's like tzitzit, plural. I like the way you got to read the plural Hebrew term for tzitzit, didn't you? Can anyone remember that one? Tzitziot. Yes, tzitzit. This is a tzitzit. These are tzitziot. Uh, similarly, we read a parasha every week, but what do we read over the course of a year? Parshiot. Everybody say parshiot. This is like advanced Hebrew here, right? But I thought you'd be interested to know it. So tzitzit, tzitziot, parasha, parshiot. And I wanted to point out just one thing about these. Uh, Numbers 15. This is how they point to Messiah, or one example. In verse 38, it says, Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And the Hebrew there doesn't say put. It says give. The Hebrew, Hebrew uh, verb natan. Give on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. So there's something about the blue thread on the corner of a garment that represents his gift. Can anyone quote John 3.16 for me? That he what his only son? He gave his only son. So just like we put this blue thread in the tzitzit, we give it, he gave his only son. So these are my John 3.16 strings, okay? These represent the gospel. How's that? They can, they're, like, they're like the biblical what would Jesus do bracelet. It reminds you of what he did, the Torah, and to do the Torah, just like the master. <laughs> and it also reminds us that just like we give the blue thread into the tzitzit, the father gave his son. Blue represents royalty. And Yeshua is the, the Melech HaMashiach. He's the, the King Messiah. So blue represents our royal king who is returning to take us as his bride. There's another thing that this represents. Blue. What's the color of water? Blue. That is correct. And what is water a picture of throughout the scriptures? The word, yes, that's one thing. Cleansing. Cleansing, yep. What does it say? The washing, uh, the cleansing of the what? I think it's in Titus. The Holy Spirit. 
Yes. Blue. The frequency of energy color blue. Okay. It's, it's a cooler color. Okay. Well, in this case, blue also represents the gift of the Holy Spirit. So tzitzit, there's something about them that represents Mashiach, um, God's gift, and there's something about tzitzit that represents the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there are some really cool teachings connected with that, and I'm not going to give them to you today, but I do want to have a special time. Uh, we've done this in Saskatoon, and it's a lot of fun. I want to have an evening where we can just get together, and we'll learn about tzitzit, we'll learn about the Talit and some things that it represents. Um, I, I have a Seventh-day Adventist pastor friend who actually is really interested in that. And I, I think he'd be interested in coming out for that. And then we'll have a tzitzit tying party. We'll get a bunch of strings and we'll learn how to tie tzitzit. I'd like to do that. I was thinking that would be fun to do for a Rosh Hodesh, like for a new moon celebration. So we can't do it this week, but I mean this, this Rosh Hodesh, but in the next one or two, I would like to do that. I think it would be a great community activity. Lots of fun. So keep that in mind. I want to I do one skit here to finish. Is that cool if we do a skit? Okay. I need two volunteers this time. Uh, could I get... I need a couple bigger guys. Could I get Mark and Colin? Okay. So in Exodus, Exodus 14.8... It gives us a detail about the posture of the people of Israel as they were exiting Egypt. And it says that the people of Israel were exiting Egypt and they were going out with an upraised hand. Okay? So the people of Israel were exiting Egypt with an upraised hand. And this, this leaves a question in our mind. What does that mean? Were they all walking out, asking God, like being like, God, I have a question. Or were they walking out praising Him? Is that what Biyad Ramah means, with an upraised hand? Or did, was it like a fist? Like they were like, you know, um, bold or something like that. What does it mean? And that same phrase is used in this parsha, and it explains it. That, that, that term Bayadrama. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. Because it, it answers a question that I've had for several years, actually. And I finally <laughs> discovered it this last week. So, how about you guys um, come over here? Um, this is Egypt right here, this little zone here. And I need one of you to, like, kind of, I need one of you to exit Egypt, like, kind of skipping with an upraised hand, okay? And really, really happy. Okay, and then I need one of you to be really solid, and I need you to walk out with your fist up like this. And not an angry look, but like a fierce look on your face. Okay, like a militant look. Okay, so, because um, this is the question. How did they, how did they exit? So, I'll, Colin, why don't you exit, you can exit Egypt and just come over here to Canaan first. <laughs> okay, so is that how they left? <laughs> Good job, guys. <laughs> okay. And uh, this, this same phrase is used in this parsha, but it's used in a context where it explains it to us. Um, there is a term for this that I want to introduce to you before we actually discover what it means. There are 13 rules in the traditional Jewish way of handling the scriptures. 
Interpreting the scriptures is called hermeneutics, right? Everybody say hermeneutics. So there are 13 hermeneutical principles in the Jewish tradition. You can read about them in the Arts Girl Sidur if you want to. We're not going to go into all of them, but one of them is called Gzerashava. Everybody say Gzerashava. And it means like um, equal meanings or uh, like two understandings that are on the level. And what it means is if you don't understand a phrase in one passage, then you look at where that phrase is used in another passage and it should mean the same thing or have the same nuance. So basically it's like the Bible interprets itself. One verse will explain and define another verse, and similarly. Um, actually, I was just reading Origen this last week. He is a famous church father, and he uh, quoted this saying by an early Messianic Jew. He called him the Hebrew. He would sometimes reference him. Origen said that the Hebrew told him this, uh, this charming parable, that the scriptures are like a house full of rooms, and all of the rooms are locked. They're behind locked doors. And you are only given one key, and the keys to all of the locked rooms are in different rooms. But the key to each room isn't in that room. And so your quest is you go into the house with the key, and you use the key to open one door that will give you another key, and that key will open another door, and that key will open yet another door. And it's like that with the scriptures. The scriptures interpret themselves. You need the whole thing to understand what Mashiach is communicating, right? So anyway, that, that's a broader uh, hermeneutical principle that I wanted to share with you, and I'll give you a little incident of it. We were questioning about Bayadrama, the upraised hand, and what it means, and in Numbers 15.30, we are given the answer. Um, Numbers 15 is all about offerings that are made. Several of them are for sin, unintentional sin. And then in Numbers 15.30, he says, but the person who does something Bayadrama with an upraised hand. I'll read you verse 29 to get the context. You will have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with an upraised hand, biyad ramah, whether he's native or an alien, that one is blaspheming Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. So there is this contrast made. You do something by mistake. You accidentally sin. You weren't aware of a mitzvah and you break it, right? That's unintentional sin. What's the opposite of that, though? The opposite is biyad ramah, doing something with an upraised hand. So what does that connote in your mind? I know what you're doing. You know what you're doing, yeah. I know what's wrong, what you're doing. Okay, yeah. Uh, some other words would be like, you're doing something independently of him. Yes, actually the NASB renders that phrase, biyad ramah, as defiantly and boldly. It says the people of Israel left Egypt boldly. The people of Israel left Egypt defiantly. The people of Israel left Egypt with an upraised hand of independence. That tells me something about redemption in Messiah. When we walk away from Satan's kingdom, we do so boldly. We leave with an upraised hand. And as the Father calls us to whatever degree out of the world system, we are in the world but we're not of it. It's this paradox, right? But as, as, as we go through that process, we can go through it with an upraised hand. And I believe that we're going to see the fullness of that still in the future. Intentionally, yeah. That's how it's rendered in there. Yeah. So it tells me too that there's a place for being intentional in our discipleship. You know, we don't just kind of go along with the crowd. We don't just do what we feel like doing. 
There is this element of intentionality in our observance of God's commandments, our study of His Word, how we treat our families and the people around us. I appreciate that. You know, that, that's a great business principle also, being intentional. So, I wanted to finish with that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.